fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scriptarian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, aka Lewis, aka Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. First off, happy Halloween, everyone! Um, today we're going to be talking about a spooky book in theme with today. Um, so whether you're a writer here for advice or a reader here for more content on a book you loved, welcome. Uh, there will be spoilers coming up for this book, so keep that in mind before you listen on. And today we are going to be talking about Anna Dressed in Blood by Kendare Blake. I have never in my entire life met anyone named Kendare, so I I feel like that's the only reasonable way to pronounce it, but I also feel like I'm screwing it up. Um, is this a common name somewhere? I I don't know, but I am fascinated with it because of that. Um, you probably know her from Three Dark Queens. That's kind of her big book. Um, so that same author wrote Anna Dressed in Blood. By the title, you can probably imagine that this is a horror book. It's a YA horror book, and it is probably my favorite horror book because of all the fantasy elements and the characters. I I love the characters. Essentially, this story follows Cass, a teenage boy who kills malicious ghosts with the athame his father once used to do the same before his death. It's a family calling, and Cass and his mother, now that his father is dead, move across the country so that he can hunt these ghosts that do the most harm to the most living people. Next on his list is a Canadian ghost, colloquially called Anna Dressed in Blood, because she died in a white dress and had her throat cut so badly by persons unknown that her blood stained the entire dress red. She now has a staggering number of kills of people who have come into the house where she died and has become somewhat of an urban legend in this little Canadian town. So Cass enrolls in a high school where she lived and uses his fellow classmates to learn more about the legend and find where Anna's house is. But when he does, he finds she's stronger than any other ghost he's faced and that just maybe he might be falling in love with her. Instead of killing her, he decides he wants to find a way to set her free and save her from the curse that makes her so malicious in her afterlife, which makes it sound like it's a love story, but it is first and foremost a ghost story. It is a horror book. It's got gore and murder and death and anxiety abounding. Um, there's a little bit of love story in there, but it's secondary. And I would highly recommend it really any time of year, not even just this time of year, because Cass and Anna and all the friends are just fantastic. There is a sequel, and I'm I'm going to try not to talk about it because it breaks my physical heart in a good way, but we're just going to stick to talking about the original Anna Dressed in Blood. First, in my copy of this book, and I have what I assume is the first edition of the paperback, the ink of the text is red, like throughout, not black like normal, but really dark crimson red. This is such a cool effect, considering it's a horror book that has a strong motif around blood. It's not shocking or annoying. It, it's not like a bright red that kind of hurts your eyes. Uh, if you stare at it long enough, it blends in and feels black again, but it is there. Uh, it kind of sets the tone when you first open the book and you notice it throughout every once in a while. It's these small details that can really make a book pop. Obviously, the actual story has to be good, but when you include elements like 
different colored or fonted text, embossed naked covers, a wraparound cover, sprayed edges, illustrated pages, anything like that. You add a certain inherent atmosphere for those reading the book. It feels special, right? Like extra effort was taken. It's not going to make or break it, but it's going to add something. These types of things are likely a publisher's call. That's what I'd guess, but maybe have something in mind that you could add to your physical copy of, of your book. For marketing purposes, having ideas can't hurt, and it can be fun to think of so long as you don't get too attached. It's probably a higher cost if you end up going indie, and the publisher is going to get the final say on details like that if you go trad, but having some details like this in mind can even be just a great way for you personally to get invested in the particular vibe of your story. So, food for thought. Now, let's talk about the actual story. Cass, our point of view character, is a teenage boy, written in first person, and written by a female author. And may I just say, Blake pulled this off incredibly well? Most authors, at least it seems, I don't have any statistics on me, um, but most authors write single points of view, especially first-person single points of view, from the same gender perspective as their own. Women tend to write female main characters, men tend to write male main characters. It's just easier to nail the female voice if you're a female and the male voice if you're a male. It's familiar. It's writing what you know. So instinctually, these tend to be the kinds of main characters that come to mind. Doing the opposite can tend to come across as fake to readers because of all just the slight differences in the way that men and women tend to speak and write and etc. And yet in this book, Cass doesn't feel like a female voice in a male character. He feels like a male voice all the way, deep down. It's in the details, in the way he describes the physical and emotional, in the way his thought processes work, in the things he thinks versus the things he says. That's hard. So props to Blake for that. And real quick, if you're an author trying to write in the opposite gendered voice, here are a couple tips I've noticed, um, things that tend to be true between the genders to keep in mind. One, Men speak a lower percentage of their thoughts compared to women. Women say more out loud, whereas men keep more close to the chest and say what they do say in fewer words. So incorporate that knowledge into your prose versus dialogue proportion if you're writing in male versus female perspective. And two, men tend to use I think statements and women tend to use I feel statements. Now, you don't want to overuse either of these because too much of I think this, I think that, I feel this, I feel that is going to come across as hedging, um, and that's weak writing. But when you do use one, especially in dialogue, it can make your voice feel more genuine to use think for men and feel for women. So little style changes like that can help sell your book to make it feel truly like a male versus a female perspective. And Anna Dressed in Blood does this really well. Another thing this book does well is setting up its premise in the most interesting way possible. We all know, as writers, the first chapter is the hardest to write, the hardest to get right, because you have to do so much in a single chapter. You have to set up the character, set up what they want, set up why and how they plan to get it. And the first chapter of Anna Dressed in Blood does this exceptionally well. It opens with Cass on a ghost hunt. It's somewhat a typical ghost, a hitchhiker that will crash the car by jerking the wheel off a bridge when the driver comes to it. The ghost is already in the car when the chapter starts. He's talking to Cass. They're having a casual conversation. Cass is thinking about what he's going to do. 
kill him and why, explaining the bloodline of ghost killers he comes from and what happened to his dad that is now motivating him. It takes us as readers a second to realize the person in the car is a ghost. Cass knows more than we do and he's hinting at it and then he finally says it and we're like, oh my gosh, interesting. And as we see the whole hunt play out, Cass reveals who he is, a ghost killer, what he wants to go avenge his father and how he's going to get it practicing on bigger and badder ghosts until he can take the one that killed his dad. Anna dressed in blood is later revealed, but already implied in this first chapter to be his big test, his sign that he'll be ready. And so within only a few pages, he becomes very real and we're rooting for him. Cass is a great main character in this regard, and in the regard that he truly doesn't care what people think of him, which is great in a main character. I wish more main characters were like this. He doesn't get bent out of shape when he makes enemies. He often even can't help but to like his enemies. And he has an easy way of interacting with strangers that comes from his competence and confidence. Cass is in no way simple. He falls in love with a ghost, for goodness sakes. But he is easy to understand because he's so easygoing. And this first chapter starts it all. is a great example of how to open with action that we as readers can care about. You'll often hear the advice to not start out your book with a battle scene because we as readers don't care about any of the characters yet. This is solid advice. Don't do that. But if you can give us as readers an understandable situation, like a ghost hunt, that slowly reveals itself over building tension, that shows us who the character is through their thoughts and fears and eventual actions, that's, that's what an opening scene is supposed to do. Give a good mix of thoughts and dialogue, a good mix of questions and answers, and your opening chapter will draw readers in with the emotion of the action rather than the gimmick of the action. Okay. Now let's talk about swear words. I, I will not lie. I don't like them. <laughs> they make me uncomfortable and I can't actually go on about why, but that's not the point here. We're not talking about morality or preference or anything like that. We are here to talk about literary value. This book does use its fair share of swear words, especially the F-bomb. Um, it's always going to bother me, but it bothers me much less than usual here because of the way the curse words are used. First of all, genre is going to heavily determine how many of these you can get away with slash should use. Horror is going to have top usage because horror contains the most sudden fear, pain, rage, mistakes, frustration, things that typically prompt people to swear. It might feel too unrealistic to have none at all unless it's a real trait of your characters or written for a younger audience. But even if you have an older audience, YA and older, if you have a, a, an audience that is even okay with swear words, it's still important not to overdo it, which brings me to really point two, my main point. Too many writers don't seem to realize that swear words are just as capable of becoming crutch words as any other word. Swear words are, are words. <laughs> uh, that means you need to use them for a reason and sparingly, not gratuitously, because you can't spend the effort to hone word choice or for shock value, that's weak writing, but because the word, like any other, is well-placed, meaningful, or indicative of character. The more you use curse words in general and any particular one, the less effect each one is going to have. The first time you use it will have the most, so be careful that that first F-bomb you drop counts. Make it count. By the time you get to 70 uses, readers aren't even noticing anymore, and it's just a filler word, like very or suddenly. That makes it weak writing. So if you do feel prompted to use a curse word or two, or even more, be aware that the principles for use are just like any other word. Don't clutter your dialogue with them. 
Use them when you're truly going for particular emphasis. Make sure they're in line with the character and what's going on around them. And if you use them in prose, like in a first-person narration, make sure other aspects of your point of view character match such a way of thinking. Cast does match it here, so that's why it didn't really bother me. Um, but it's it's not enough to just say that people naturally use a lot of swear words in dialogue, so I can use however many I want in my dialogue. It's not enough to say that things are serious or people being chased by ghosts would realistically use a lot of curse words. You are a writer. It is your job to use the right words in the right places, to give variety, to hone word choice, to be exact and to be vague where it is necessary to be exact or vague. Reflect real life, sure, but be aware of A, your audience, B, your genre, and C, your quantity of use. One way to get around this <laughs> that Blake uses really effectively and, and is also one of the reasons it didn't bother me and it didn't make me feel like she was just trying to sound cool by using a lot of swear words is indirect dialogue. Indirect dialogue is underused. It is when you write in prose that something was said rather than quoting it in direct dialogue. So direct dialogue is going to use quotation marks. Um, indirect is just going to be part of the narrative. So you can, after you've used curse words in dialogue or before you start to in earnest, simply write something like he cursed or she let out a string of curse words or something like that. This way you get the frustration or fear across but save the fullest effect for particular situations. <sighs> Mainly, just be aware that swear words aren't exceptions. They can just as easily become crutch words, like smiled or turned or suddenly. Don't fill your prose with them, even if it's technically realistic, the same way you wouldn't want prose filled with words like just or very or like. The more you describe something as ethereal, the less ethereal everything feels. The same principle is true of curse words. The more you curse the less effect they have, you're actually undermining the intent of using those words. So don't lean on them. Pick different words. Oftentimes you can just take them out entirely and nothing will change. So be careful and particular in your use. Another thing this book did well was, of course, the horror aspect. Blake doesn't hold back. People die. People die in gruesome ways. It's grisly, to be honest, for YA. But something that horror books have going for them that movies don't is that the gore and terror are more emotional in a book because your primary senses, sight and hearing, aren't being engaged to interpret the story. Your mind is, your brain, your imagination. That means everything is going to filter more thoroughly through emotions rather than the physical. You aren't being grossed out or physically feeling your heart pound so much when you read. Your anxiety is coming more from emotionally what's going on with the characters, feeling for them, empathizing with them, because you're in their heads. It's not better or worse, but it's something horror books should lean into that horror movies can't. I like that this book didn't shy away from death, but it is YA in the sense, very YA in the sense, that those who die are either off-page characters we don't really know, like the poor guy murdered in the park, or a character we know that we don't like. <laughs> the point of horror isn't to break our hearts, which might be the point to another genre with a lot of death, like fantasy. But the purpose is to horrify, to fear for the people we do like, the ones we want to survive. So while I wouldn't say any of the characters who die in this book deserve it, with one main exception, Anna, all the characters who die are not characters we miss or bemoan as innocent. They, they were honestly kind of jerks. <laughs> There's a small satisfaction when they die, and then we focus on the horror for those who find their bodies, the ones we actually like. 
I think that's where the YA element is going to come in with this genre. The little more of a good versus evil vibe. Not in a black and white way, but in a good will prevail type of way. There are consequences for being a jerk, even if the consequences are larger than perhaps deserved. Though, to be honest, I feel like Mike deserved it. <laughs> he's, he's the first to die. And he did actively almost kill Cass because he had the audacity to talk to his ex-girlfriend. He was possessive and probably would have grown up to be a creep. But I guess it's a matter of opinion if being literally torn in half lengthwise is a fitting punishment for that. Your call. But it certainly isn't disturbing on the, but he was such a good person level, right? That's reserved here only for Anna and the unfairness of her death. We reserve all the injustice for Anna, and that gives it a greater impact. Adult horror books can, I think, lean too heavily on gore or evil without cause, but this book and other YA horror books I've read can really dig deep into this unjust ground. We can feel angry and heartbroken within these horror stakes because of Anna and the injustice of her death. She is a fantastic ghost, strong but vulnerable, unique in her dynamics, somehow innocent and guilty, and brings to light a bit of the morally gray. How responsible is she for the things she's done? Is Cass good or bad for setting her free instead of killing her? Which brings me to my next point. So many of the typical romance tropes are reversed in this book. You have the immortal or supernatural man with the teenage girl trope, here, Anna, the girl, is the immortal ghost, about 60 to 70 years old, and Cass, the boy, is the teenager involved. Anna is the physically stronger one, though Cass is certainly capable. Cass is the point of view character, not the girl, and Anna is the object of his love. Anna is the morally great character, who has murdered and has a tortured past. Cass is the one with a strong sense of morality and daddy issues. That's how to twist a trope, and how to do it well. Their dynamics are still so sweet and shipworthy but changed up enough to also be unique. And it's not as though Anna loses her femininity or Cass loses his masculinity. They twist the tropes, but not even really gender norms. And I loved seeing it play out on this very different, but still satisfying level. Moving on to reread potential. I read this book when it first came out and I just now reread it. So I will say this book was definitely stronger on the first read than the second, but that's, that's pretty normal. Most books are. The action just moves faster when your anxiety is up, not knowing what's going to happen. And that's hard to achieve on a reread when you basically already know. When you know that Anna's going to sacrifice herself as she does, there's a more guardedness to your emotional attachment to her. The surprise is gone. So really the only time a reread will strike as hard as the first time is if it's forgettable. And this book is not forgettable. The only thing I'd actually forgotten was Will and Chase's deaths, so that one hit me the hardest this time around while upon the first read Anna's did, because it's so tragic. So the question is, how do you write a book to stick in someone's memory and have reread potential? First of all, there's nothing wrong with a book having less reread potential. Horror books in particular are intended for that initial surprise and anxiety and shock value, but if you want to go for it, characters are really what gives reread potential. Uh, that's why I still really enjoyed rereading it this time. Readers like to relive the specifics of the character's humor and see the foreshadowing more clearly. Foreshadowing is really where reread potential is going to be and in the small details and humor. So it's not super necessary, but it can be fun to write with an intention toward rereaders. I especially noticed this time around all of the background ghost stories, like the small details, like the initial hitchhiking ghost and ghost that happened 
interspersed throughout. Um, it was super interesting. There was variety to them, but that common thread with Cass. So if you are into writing some kind of horror story or ghost story or anything like that, coming up with small little background horror elements to pad the background of the story can be a really good way to make it stand out and continue to be intriguing even when the action is at a, a lower point. All right, a last couple things. Does this book not give off first few seasons of Supernatural vibes? Cass is like YA Sam and Dean. I hadn't watched the show yet when I first read this book, so rereading it now after having watched the show, I noticed it right away. Book two does the same thing, and it's so fun to see something like that in book form. So if you're sitting out there right now with like a YA horror story idea, please write it. YA horror is sort of like sci-fi. There's just not a lot of it out there, and there's especially not enough high-quality versions of it out there. I want more. Give me more. Moving on. I also love the sacrifice Anna makes at the end. I love sacrifice in general, and it was cool to see it here from the perspective of the character that isn't making the sacrifice. Um, sometimes point-of-view characters making sacrifices can go on a bit about how it's the right thing and how much they love everyone, and it can feel a little self-grandiose, but when it's another character and we see instead the pain the point-of-view character is in, I feel like that's stronger. We still get the sense of love without the annoying bits, and we get to see the other side of it. We get to see Cass's heartbreak at Anna doing this for him. And Anna is such a strong character. I, I love her and Cass as a couple, significantly more than any other ghostly couple I think I've ever read. They're adorable and tentative and yet so pure in their love for one another. The end of book two, that's pure love. My heart is permanently broken. I physically cannot breathe when I think about it. So it was really nice to read about them from the beginning again and kind of have that moment back. Like I said, reread potential, revisiting the characters before they become who they are at the end is really fun. So that's all I have to say about Anna Dressed in Blood. It's spooky and gory and kind of scary. It was definitely terrifying to me when I first read it. Reading it again, uh, less so because I knew it was going to happen, but it, it's, it's pretty scary, I think, um, but still has a lot of substance. That being said, thank you for joining me here on this Halloween, and I will see you on the next page. <laughs> <laughs>